This is Screen Watching. I'm Dan Barrett. And boy, do I have good news for you. Black Widow is out in cinemas now. Cinemas are saved. Big screen movies are back. Uh, wait, hang on, no, there's a lockdown and we had to watch this via Disney Premium Access and it cost us $35. I guess we'll talk about that and more on this week's screen watching. This is not like TV only better. Television, teacher, mother, secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Hey there, dudes, dudettes. This is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. I'm bushies held, wide awake, and good to talk about movies and TV, which we do on the podcast on a weekly basis. As I said, my name is Dan Barrett. I'm joined here, as always, by my friend, colleague, fellow critic, Simon Foster. Good to be here, Dan Barrett. Uh, yes, we are in lockdown here in Sydney. I hope the rest of the country and the rest of the world is enjoying the freedom of society where we're... Uh We've gone into serious lockdown, which means a whole lot of screen watching, which is very exciting. Not only serious lockdown, but it means that, look, you and I, we've been doing this podcast now for a year plus, like we've been doing this entirely though, during pandemic times. I know, it's crazy. And it's and good, so, I mean, we still haven't met. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't even know how tall you are. Um, but look, so we've been doing this podcast for like some time now, and it's been during this pandemic period where movie cinemas in the US have been shut down. Mm. And because the US is the predominant way that the movie industry functions, because that's where a lot of the money is, and that's where a lot of the movies come from Very generally, yeah. it means that if that market isn't working properly, the rest of the industry, the rest of the world... Grinds to a halt. It grinds to a halt. And that's been... The, and that's been... That was one of the main complaints that, that our local industry sort of... Um, screamed out when we when we had cinemas opens, but the US didn't. We just didn't have any product coming through. We had nothing to, to show in the cinemas. That's it. So we had small, a couple of small indie films, yeah. and some of those were fine. We had a whole bunch of movies that otherwise wouldn't have seen release yeah. in cinemas, but Which we had to review you know, straight to DVD stuff yep. that you know made its way to the big screen. And we've talked about some of that stuff on the podcast over this past year. In the last few months now, we've had a couple of biggish releases. So we saw like The Quiet Place Part Two. F9, those are probably the two biggest so far. But the one that everyone was looking to to open up cinemas globally was Black Widow. And we found ourselves in this position where you and I, Simon, we've been talking about the dregs for the past year. And there's been some good dregs, but they have been dregs. So we're ready here to talk about the uh, movies coming back this week. And we suddenly found ourselves in lockdown with our cinemas shut down and we weren't able to see this on a big screen. The bitter, bitter irony of the whole thing, Dan Barrett. <laughs> it, it's not lost on me whatsoever. Um, it, I, I, and I think that, and we'll get straight in, we'll get into a review very quickly, but the the I think that brought with it a, a level of expectation to Black Widow. It, it, it put this added... Not so much a burden, but an added focus on it to bring back the audiences, to be this blockbuster movie, to be the, the saviour of of, uh, of Hollywood and the worldwide exhibition scene. Um, and I don't know if that does it any real service. Let's get into our review and maybe discuss this a little bit more, because it's a very important point that that with so few blockbusters in the cinemas, um, these, these sort of films take on an, an added weight. Oh, look, absolutely. So we're not just going to talk about Black Widow on the podcast this week. 
We will be talking about The White Lotus, which is the brand new HBO series from Mike White, which is well worth a look, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, the new doco, The Sparks Brothers, which comes from Edgar Wright. We've got a look at real estate show Lux Listing Sydney, which is an Amazon Prime Video series. And also coming to Amazon Prime Video was the other big blockbuster movie of the week-ish, uh, which is the Chris Pratt action movie star of The Tomorrow War. But we'll talk about all that and more. Uh, we've got to remember Richard Donner. We've got an interview with Christine Luby, who made a rom-com called This Little Love of Mine, which has dropped on Netflix this weekend. We're also going to talk about the experience of buying a movie through the Disney Premier Access. But we'll get to all that and more as we dive right into reviews. It stinks. Okay, Simon, I guess maybe we start with Black Widow because, you know, this is what we're here for. This is the big tent movie of the week. I tell people my sister moved out west. You're a science teacher. Your husband, he renovates houses. You're thinking about moving, but you're going to wait until the interest rates go down. That's not my story. <laughs> Simon Foster, Black Widow, please, I will allow you to do the honours. Oh, thanks very much. We uh, we join Black Widow right at the very start of her life. She is a, a young woman, um, a very young woman with a very young sister, 1995 actually in Ohio. Very hard to say Ohio. Um, we learn that her parents, played by Rachel Weiss and David Harbour, um, are actually Russian agents, not just Russian agents, but he is Alexei Shostakov, known as the Red Guardian, sort of Russia's version of Captain America, and she's Melina Vostokov, a former Black Widow operative, um, and their plants, they've been sent into the US to uh, bring the country down from the inside, to send information back to Russia, um, and at the very last moment, they have to um, uh, flee the, uh, the, the the nation of America, head back to Russia. What follows is a journey through the, the dark heart of her past, where she learns what her sister's been up to, played by the wonderful Florence Pugh, um, where her father is being kept, and how she reconnects with her mother, who is still... Uh, very much deeply inside the Black Widow movement. Um, along the way, she realises that Drakov, played by Ray Winston, one of the great movie accents of all time, um, may still be controlling the Black Widow movement, much to the detriment of the young women of the world. And that is Black Widow. And there's a, a you know, there's obviously a lot more layered uh, narrative plotting in there, but um, it's a fairly exciting film and one that I found was a, a terrific first studio gig for Australian Kate Shortland. Dan... Where did you fall with the Black Widow movie? So look, I was a bit disappointed that I was watching it on a small screen because the one thing I've definitely found with all these Marvel movies, and keep in mind, as much as I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the Marvel films, I will be there absolutely first day to watch all of them because I'm a like reformed comic book guy. I love the source material. I get a kick out of seeing these stories on the big screen. That big screen spectacle... But I do find that if I try watching it on a small screen afterwards, even the Marvel films I've really gotten quite a kick out of watching on a big screen. Mm. I watch on a small screen, it feels very flat to me. So seeing this, a film I was very excited to see because this is a film that is very much in the mold of one of my favourite Marvel films, being Captain America, the... Um, what was the second one? There was The Winter Soldier. Winter Soldier. Uh, it was very much in that mode. And I was there for this. I found it a little bit flat. Uh, it was just... Everything that I think I would have gotten a kick out of on a big screen, on a small screen, it suddenly just sort of laid bare for what it is. My big issue was, 
I watched the first um, opening sequence, which uh, borrows a lot from TV series like The Americans, and it was really well shot. You've got this great action sequence where they're living in everyday suburban America. They have to flee like immediately. There's shield agents that are chasing after them. They're escaping by plane, and there's gunshots happening, and there's like a pew, 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 and that's all a lot of fun. And then straight after that, they start going to Europe where there's a lot more of a born identity influence onto the film. And at that point, it just kind of felt like I'd prefer to be watching the born identity. And as the film kept on going, it kept on taking its very obvious influences from around the place. Some of them obvious influences, some of them just kind of rubbed up against other films. So if you're watching this and felt a fair bit of like Red Sparrow, the recent, it was uh, Jay Lauren, that wasn't it? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. Yeah. If you felt some Red Sparrow, like, you know, I'm sure you're not alone. Like, there's a lot of influence and just similarities to other cinema. And I was just watching it thinking, I'd prefer to be watching the original types of films as opposed to seeing Marvel sort of grafting the Marvel formula on the top of these other movies. And something about it just sort of felt so insincere. But also, I kind of feel if I was sitting in a cinema with my big bag of candy and a delicious drink there, the big screen and the big sound, I probably would have been a lot more forgiving of those elements, even though that if you said on paper, hey, it's a Black Widow film and it borrows elements from the Americans and from the Born Identity, I'd be there saying, look, I'm there first day, I'm excited by that, but the reality of seeing that play out on screen, it just kind of felt a little bit lifeless to me. That's really interesting because that hasn't been uncommon amongst Marvel movies. They've often said that, you know, Captain America: Civil War was a was a was a um. Like a seventies paranoia throwback, and they've often worn yeah, their influence. You hear this kind of thing all the time, and they talk about their influences. But when you watch the film, it's like, yeah, I kind of get that, but it's not as overt as I think was definitely the case here. That's there was very a lot true. of stylistic elements and a lot of various obvious little location work that felt so similar thematically as well as just visually to these other films. And I couldn't help thinking of The Incredibles. Even the animated film, I thought, had a, had, had certain elements of it as well. So I totally disagree. What, what's the difference between an animated film and a big Marvel spectacle like this? Like so much as a CGI anyway that you may yeah. as well be watching a Pixar joint. Yeah, so I, and I agree with you. I thought there were elements of this that felt familiar. Um, I think in that regard, it's probably let down a little bit by the the, the Marvel template for, for their own movies. I think mm. they bring these young directors on board like they did with Ryan Cogler for Black Panther, like they, uh, like they did with uh, originally Edgar Wright for for Ant-Man, but then that all changed. Um, but they bring on these these young filmmakers, like the, the pair they did for Captain uh, Captain America as well. Uh, not Captain the America, Russos. Captain Marvel. Um, oh, sorry, yep. And with with Kate Shortland, she brings out uh, the, the, the sort of deeper themes of the film in the quieter moments. She, uh, the, the dinner table scene or the lunch table scene when the family all gets back together for the first time and there's some humour and there's some sadness and those sort of moments... Um, it's it's wonderful to see what Shortland does with the characters. Uh, overall, she sort of maintains a really strong sort of female bond between the two sisters. Um, it's sort of let down a bit. David Harbour kind of uh, sort of melts into the background a little bit, and I thought he was going to take a really strong comic relief lead. <clears throat> excuse me, in in this, which he doesn't quite do. Um, but the, the the element of of girl power of the two sisters really bonding is strong and that's what shortland does with this film as you say the action stuff it will just very quickly in fact it already has kind of just blurred into my mind as with other um 
Marvel films, the the big spectacular ending that that we've come to expect sort of looks a little bit like the one from the Captain America films, sort of looks like the the Avengers movies. So we know the template they work with. But overall, um, and I will, to your point about not seeing it on the big screen, at one point I did say that, boy, watching it on 4K, even on even like a really crisp, clean um, television, like I've got a big screen television, 4K television like I've got, I did think it looked a little bit tinny. I thought some of the effects looked very gamey um, and very CGI, which I know is softened when you watch it on the, on the um, big screen. So um, I'm going to cut it a little bit of slack in that regard. Uh, I, I also agree that, especially the prison break sequence, I wish I'd seen on the big screen because that looked very gamey to me. Look, overall, I'm going to be a little bit lighter on it than I think you were. I, I quite enjoyed certainly Scar Jo's performance, certainly Florence Pugh's performance. She was fantastic and, and brought a real heart and soul to the film and a real toughness as well, which we haven't seen from Florence in the past. Um, I, I'm gonna, Look, I, I quite enjoyed the film. As far as, and look, I mean, it's a bit hard to sort of talk about this thing as men in 2021, but I'll admit I'm a bit of a puddle on the ground when Scarlett Johansson or Florence Pugh is on screen. Like, either one of them, like, I'm completely putty in their hands. And the two of them in one movie together, Simon, oh my God, I was, you know, completely lost in it all. Sure. I have to say, though, I was a little bit disappointed in Pugh in this one because I kind of feel that Pugh's at her absolute best when she's a little bit more reserved and you kind of have to find your way to her and find your way into her performance. Whereas in this, because she's such a brash action, you know, superstar, it just kind of felt just, I don't know, it didn't really feel like she was at her necessarily at her best. Like it wasn't playing to her strengths at all. She was perfectly fine and serviceable, but I wasn't completely blown away by her addition in there in a way that I feel that Scarlett Johansson really does just embody the Natasha Romanoff character like remarkably well. And despite the fact that, you know, she's supposed to have a like legitimate Russian accent where Scar, uh, Scarlett Johansson probably isn't necessarily bringing that to it entirely. Like, you know, you can give that a pass because I think she just does so well in that role. And I can see you waving your finger around now because you want to talk about accent work. Oh, boy. Now, I know that Ray Winston was meant to be of Russian descent. At various times during his big speech with uh, Scarlett Johansson, his big dialogue scene, um, he sort of wavered between a little bit of South African, quite a bit of Trinidad-Tobago, some New Zealand. There was we, we had such a ball trying to nail down exactly what Ray Winston was trying to do with his, with his accent. It was um, one of the great um, garbled Russian accents of, of all time. Strange, very strange. Now, I do think that my experience of watching this, particularly the fact that I saw it on a small screen and not in a cinema, and bear in mind, this is the first Marvel film in two years. So, like, as you said at the beginning, there was a lot of weight placed on it. But what's happened in the last year now is that we've got these Marvel TV series that are taking, uh, taking part at the same time now as we're seeing the Marvel films coming. So you've got two different types of Marvel experiences. And I think the way to approach it is that the big screen Marvel films are the huge spectacle stories and the ones that really drive character narratives forward in a really big way and drive forward the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a sort of very specific narrative manner. Whereas the TV series are an opportunity to play on the margins somewhat, take characters that are side characters from the movies and just explore and see what's happening in their world while all the big stuff's happening over on the big movies. The thing I found with this, because we're watching a movie that had been delayed by about a year or so because of the pandemic in terms of just being released, in terms of the fact that this is a movie that takes place after Captain America, the Civil War, 
But before the Avengers movies, where we actually see the death of the Black Widow, Natasha Romanov character, you're finding a story which kind of feels like it has no real dramatic weight to it because we know where she goes and we know that things don't necessarily work out for her. So you kind of left like this finale where, yes, they wrap up the narrative story business of the previous two hours that you've been watching, but you don't really get any sort of sense of conclusion for this character. Like literally the last scene that you see her in is a scene that's kind of an open-ended, you know, I'm just going to go off and do something now. Like she's not really given like any, like there's no completism for her story. I Look, that has been an issue with me with the comic book uh, genre for, for years. You know they're going to win in the end. You know they're going to move on to another adventure. That's I, I didn't have a problem that, with that. But that's so... the same with like all like, you know, family-friendly sure. sort of action movies. You know it's all going to work out fine. And so that's just part of the formula. But for this one, because we've already seen like those extra steps that have taken place like two to three years ago at this point, mm. like it just kind of felt like even more weightless now. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that, yeah, I think that's a... Um, an issue that I have with, with, with most of them. So, yeah, look, there's for me, I, I think I put a lot of faith in Florence Pugh's character and that a, a big chunk of the journey of this film was was her coming to terms with finding her older sister and um, uh, sort of reconciling with her past. And she has a very frank conversation with David Harbour's character at one point about the physiological cost to her which i sort of came out of nowhere and must have almost threatened the the pg-13 rating for this film but um it was a uh, look yeah i i was involved and invested enough to um be excited by the end of the movie to feel some of the hits there was some pretty brutal sort of hand-to-hand combat in this one i think that worked out well um but yes i think overall it's it's mid-range mcu but it's at the higher end of that it's it's a it's a classy sort of mcu entry yeah, oh, look, I think by and large, it's definitely got a lot more going for it than doesn't, but there were just certainly elements where I don't think it necessarily played as well as maybe it had looked on paper. I think that the finished product just wasn't, it didn't knock it out of the park in the way I'd hoped for. But Simon, something I want to talk about just before we move on to the next set of reviews is the actual experience of getting it on the Disney Premium Access. So this is the first time I'd used the service. Me too, and yeah. yeah so the actual sort of process was incredibly easy. Basically, it was just like any other title on Disney um, Disney Plus. You click into it and it says, oh, you've got to pay more money for it. I did it through my iPhone, so that's connected to my iTunes account. So I literally just clicked the button and it worked just like every other microtransaction where the Apple stuff came up on the screen, do the double click on the side of the phone and see a little spinning wheel happen, big tick, and then suddenly I had access to it. So it was kind of nice being able to access it and... I was hesitant paying $35, and that's probably the thing I wanted to talk about here, which, look, you and I, we would have gone and seen this at the movies together uh, because, you know, my wife wouldn't want to come along to this. Like, I'd be going to see the movie by myself. Like, financially, this would be a movie that with my Telstra, Telstra Plus, is that name of the discount thing they use? I can buy movie tickets through it. It would cost me about 16 bucks to go and see this on the biggest possible screen with the best possible sound and the comfiest seats. So, like, it would be a $16 expenditure, but having to pay $35 for it, where I sat down on my couch, where I sit down every night and watch bad sitcoms, and, you know, there's nothing special necessarily about doing it, on my 65-inch TV, where for the first 10 minutes, my dog really wanted my attention, and she was shoving her face in my face, and I just kind of thought, like, I'm paying over double what I'd be paying for a far, you know, less experience, like... 
$35 just seemed pretty rough for the situation I was in where I didn't really have the choice. And I understand that price points being arranged, uh, arrived at because they look at this thinking, well, families, instead of paying sure. you know, $100 worth of tickets, if not more, as well as you know concession bar stack, snacks and all that kind of thing, like essentially $35 is just an outright bargain in compare, comparison to that. But for a single person seeing this, like it's a pretty expensive um, ticket for something which is a far lesser experience. Uh, it is even more potentially expensive for me because I haven't paid for a movie in years. I've got, I'm a member of all these <laughs> critics clubs and cinema pioneers. And so I just walk in and wave my little plastic card and they say, hey, Mr. Important Guy, you go straight on through. So oh, yeah, yes. my, my sympathy for you, Simon, it's dramatic. <laughs> so yeah, $35 is a big hit um, in this day and age. When you consider that in terms of it being... A, if, if you compare it to the single screening experience you would have if you went this to, went to see this at the movies, then yes, it's a huge hit. Um, you're absolutely right, and you bring up probably the point I'm going to make, is that for families watching this who don't then have to pay for parking, who don't then have to pay for uh, a takeaway meal or popcorn, suddenly a $35 movie with a, a bag of no-name chips from the local IGA um, comes a lot cheaper than... trip to the movie. So yes, there's there's that payoff you've got to think about. For me, and I know I've raved about this in the past, and we even touched on quite a bit in our review, it doesn't have the big screen experience. I think that whereas... um, you know, the, the, the TV series that you mentioned, the Disney um, new wave of TV series that are coming out to do with Marvel um, are built for and work best on the small screen. There's still a need for these sort of things to these sort of films to, to have that big screen experience. So that $35 is sort of a step down in terms of the way I would normally want to see this movie. Um and I reluctantly went to the, and I say small screen, I've still got a big telly with, with you know, beautiful vision and a good sound system. So it wasn't a great loss, but I wasn't sinking back into a, a, a luxe screening chair at the local multiplex and watching it on the, the biggest screen possible. So um, in terms of the $35, I'll wear it for this. Uh, I couldn't see myself doing it for any of the lesser Disney titles that may come my way. Are we going to do it for Jungle Cruise? Jungle Cruise is uh, out in a couple of weeks. I mean, I'm hoping, that cin- I'm hoping cinemas are open by that point. If we had to, would that be a film that we would... See, I I don't know if I would for Jungle Cruise. Like, I don't think I would either. Yeah. Like, literally, I sat there thinking, will I feel... Look, if we didn't talk about it on this podcast, I'd be able to live with myself. Yeah. I don't think people are necessarily hanging out to hear 100% what our thoughts were on Black Widow because this is one of these critic-proof movies yeah. and people may just want to hear their opinion sort of reinforced or whatever. But sure. if they didn't hear it from us, there's lots of other voices for this film where they can hear that. But I knew that I myself would feel as though, like when my friends are talking about it on the group chat, I'd be wanting to partake in that conversation. I'd want to know what they're talking about. And Disney as opposed to that. waiting three weeks for the cinemas to open up here again for me to get along to say it. Yeah, for sure. And Disney count on that sort of you know, social media blast that comes in the wake of a release of a movie like this to get people to buy in. But uh, technic, tech, the, tech, the technology of it, um, logging in, getting the code, getting the tick, the little swirly thing in the middle of the screen, as you referred to, yep. with such technical bravado, is very... Exceptionally in, smooth. Yeah, very smooth. Very good for you, Disney. Well done. Yeah. So it should uh, be. The, You're a bloody huge for, corporation. The technology part that I think was lacking in my experience is I've got a 65-inch TV... And I really do think, like, I've watched some stuff on my parents, 75-inch TV, 
And that TV, I think, is like actually that sort of transition point where a 75-inch TV actually does take over a moderately decent-sized lounge room in a way that my TV is just a bit small to be able to do that. So I think 75 inches, 85 inches, and at 85 inches, that's actually probably your cinema replacement size. I think so right. my technology gap is the fact that I don't think I was quite there for a home experience which matched the visual spectacle that I could get from the cinema. All valid points. Always good to talk MCU with you, Dan Barrett. Let's go into our next review, White Lotus. The goal is to disappear behind our masks as pleasant, interchangeable helpers. It's tropical kabuki. Aloha. A happy beer. We're on our honeymoon. You're such valued guests. Welcome to the White Lotus. Are they bigger? Nicole, they're huge. I haven't seen them in a while. Cancer. Swole balls. Did they biopsy your balls, Doc? Not yet. The White Lotus is a new six-part series made for HBO by Mike White, who wrote and directed every episode of the show. It asks the question, what a fantasy island, but good. Now, unlike Fantasy Island, there are seemingly no fantastical elements in the show. Rather, it's just a resort comedy with visitors coming to a tropical resort island for a holiday and finding themselves. The first episode opens with Jake Lacey at the airport, seeing the body of his newlywed wife being loaded onto a plane. Dramatic. Now, the show then flashes back to the start of the week where they arrived on the island on their honeymoon, along with a number of other guests. Joining Lacey on the show is his wife, played by Alexandra Daddario. It's probably her most charming performance to date. And there's also a husband and wife played by Connie Britton and Steve Zahn with their family. She's a well-to-do CFO who makes far more money than her fairly emasculated-feeling husband, who's also concerned that he may have testicle cancer. There's Jennifer Coolidge on the island as a fairly odd lady who finds herself being ignored by many people on the island, and ultimately all she's really after is just a good massage. Now, there's also a woman who's very pregnant working on the staff of the hotel resort. She's dangerously close to giving birth, but she needs the job very badly, and that does not go particularly well for her. The show, look, it's like all Mike White movies and TV shows. It's a light drama with humorous elements interwoven through, or it's a light comedy with dramatic elements interwoven through. With Mike White's work, it's never really easy to work out exactly where he's pitching the series. But like with all Mike White productions, you'd be left with a deep connection to all the characters and it will have gone on a very human journey with all of them. The White Lotus will leave some viewers cold if they don't connect with White's vibe, but for those that do, the series will be one of the more special series debuting this year. I've been a fan of Mike White for some time. Um, he's a writer who has uh, sort of skirted on the outskirts of indie film for a long time. I mean, he wrote School of Rock. He wrote The Good Girl, Orange County. These are all kind of quality indie films um, and had a big success with School of Rock, of course. But I don't know. I, I, there's something about this one that maybe sort of doesn't grab me. Is it kind of a white person's fantasy a little bit? Is there any sort of diversity in the in the casting or in the issues raised in the in the show because um, he, he's a master of, of sort of covering uh, that kind of community. Well, he very much sort of focuses, I guess, on sort of white middle American, I guess, values and struggles. Yeah. There is definitely diverse elements to the show, but it comes more from the hotel staff and they make a very uh, deliberate sort of point of that at the very beginning. Not necessarily talking about the fact that they are diverse, but really just talking about the role of hotel staff at a resort 
I guess their lives and their concerns versus the expectations of what the visitors to the resort are really looking for from them, which is that the staff just disappear into the background and aren't really there until they're actually needed. Big plus is the cast. Connie Britton, Steve Zahn, uh, these are all huge pluses. I've read some great things about Jennifer Coolidge uh, in her role as well, doing classic Jennifer Coolidge stuff. So I'm keen. I'm going to check it out. I'll have a look. Uh, the White Lotus is where? I know you said so, but where? Uh, look, it's an HBO series, and it continues the relationship he's had with HBO after his last series, Enlightened. And just a couple of other quick titles that people don't know Mike White, because he's kind of one of these sort of slightly under-the-radar guys. Uh, he's, as you said, he's done a lot of sort of auteurist uh, indie films. Mm. On the TV side of things, he was a writer on Freaks and Geeks for a little while there. He'd started out on Dawson's Creek, but I wouldn't really look to that as any sort of indicative element of what his sort of <laughs> writing style is like. Uh, also, he did a sitcom called Cracking Up in the early 2000s, which was probably a little bit more zany than I guess we've seen from the rest of his work. But he does have like an element of sort of zaniness, but under a very sort of cool, detached yeah. like exterior. He's an interesting creator, and this will, as I said, definitely divide some viewers. But look... I went into this. I'm a bit iffy on his work. Like, I kind of enjoy it, but I don't quite understand why. And with this, like, I was kind of really smitten with it by the end of the first hour. Sounds really interesting. I'll be checking out The White Lotus. Uh, in limited release around the country is a new documentary called The Sparks Brothers. I remember just seeing them all the time. Like, who are those guys? They are a band who you can look up on Wikipedia and know nothing. We are Sparks, dude. Please welcome Sparks. Frequently asked questions about Sparks. How many albums are there? 25 albums. Are you brothers? We are brothers. How did you first meet? We are brothers. How can one rock band be successful and underrated and hugely influential and criminally overlooked all at the same time? Now, in uh, director Edgar Wright's first documentary, The Sparks Brothers, he takes audiences on this musical odyssey through five weird and wonderful decades with brothers and bandmates Ron and Russell Mayle uh, celebrating the, the inspiring legacy of Sparks. Every musician's favourite band, but a band that nobody's ever heard of. Imagine... And I was trying to figure out exactly what Spark sounds like. It's kind of like Skyhooks meet Kate Bush. And Kate Bush is sung by a guy. So it is a super weird uh, band. The early stuff out of the 70s, both my wife and I kind of agreed that it's cute to see it for two or three minutes, but it's so high-pitched and very off-centered that it'd be tough to listen to a whole album. Although they've released 25 albums and have a huge following, this documentary features commentary from celebrity fans such as Beck and Flea and Jason Schwartzman and Neil Gaiman. Um, there's a whole range of people in there that Edgar Wright has brought on board. Um, the film finishes, and it's not giving anything away here, but the film finishes on a, a particularly high note. Their music, which has been touted as very cinematic and their album covers are quite famous, Sparks, the two brothers, have written the music for the new uh, Leos Carre film, Annette, which opened the Cannes Film Festival this week. Um, I didn't know that going into this film, so it's a total coincidence that this film's come along. Um but it's just a very sweet, funny story about these two guys who have stuck to their creative guns all the way through, not sort of 
kowtowed to the record industry expectations or fans or anything like that. They've just sort of told their story, often to their own detriment. They haven't had the success that other bands that have been around for 50 years may have had. Um, But the Sparks Brothers is a very funny and wonderfully entertaining and at times really moving documentary. A little long at two hours and 20 minutes, but um, Edgar Wright knows how to entertain and he does it with, with this documentary. I have zero awareness really at all of the Sparks Brothers outside of the fact that I know this documentary is coming. I love Edgar Wright, so I have to say I'm slightly apprehensive going into this one in that I don't know anything about them. But my understanding is that Edgar Wright made this documentary with the complete knowledge that very few people watching it would be aware of the Sparks Brothers going in. So I'm kind of curious to see how he presents it. Yeah, look, and and as the sort of the film clips started to hit that uh, mid-80s kind of stuff, I recognised a couple of the film clips, um, but certainly none of the music, because he writes these really dense lyrics, these these almost storytelling in song form, um, and it's all done with a real tongue-in-cheek, satirical, but kind of insightful um, melancholy, I guess you could say. Uh, And so they're not toe-tapping songs. They're almost operatic at times, but uh, I knew of Sparks, um, but didn't know they'd been around for this long or had the the kind of cult success that this this documentary um, uh, chronicles. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it's even if you're not a fan of the band or the music, which very few people are by all accounts, it's definitely (laughs) worth having a look at. This is playing in cinemas? It is in limited release around the country uh, later on in Sydney. Fantastic. Now, for those of us who live in Sydney, Simon, and you're a Sydney sider, you'd be well aware of this phenomenon. You can't really get through a conversation with someone for more than 10 to 15 minutes without the subject of real estate coming up. (laughs) How expensive things are, which parts of the town you live in, whether you'll ever be able to afford a house. These are the questions we have. There is a fascination in this town with real estate unlike any other subject possibly outside of where did you go to school. Hence, we've got the new TV show, the new reality show for Amazon, Lux Listings. The real estate market in Sydney is crazy. It's an incredibly fast pace. Oh my gosh. Holy sh**. The Sydney market is the most luxury in the world. The scale of one to 10, I'd say we're probably at 11 right now. Real estate is a game that I play to win. So, Simon, let me present to you what you're going to experience here with Lost Listed, Lux Listings. Oh, dear. Which is a show that focuses on some real estate agents selling very expensive-looking homes through the very expensive parts of town. So, <laughs> this is what you're going to find. You're going to find 35-year-old real estate agents. You're going to find a whole lot of air kisses. You're going to see a whole lot of drone shots. You're going to see... The drone shots, they go slow at first and then quickly go fast and then go slow again. That's the visual style that you will see ad nauseum through this entire series. You're going to find terrible stage conversations. The only time through the first episode that it really comes alive is when you've got the terrible head of the main real estate agency that we're following who's dealing with a buying agent who's trying to negotiate down the price of a $10 million house. Now, look, I would have been way more interested in the show if it actually took time to showcase these amazing homes. Explain to me what makes a home worth $10 million. What features does it have? There's entertainment value in that. I would actually love to engage in the real estate porn of this series, but it doesn't really exist. There's more entertainment value playing fantasyrealestate.com.au than you find in any given episode of this. Because the focus of the show is not on the houses, it's on the real estate agents and the relationships they have with each other, not necessarily with their clients, but with each other and the general lifestyle of the real estate agents. 
So there's entire sequences with them showing their exercise routines, like running along Bondi Beach, and I, I just don't get it. The episode, it builds up towards an auction of this $10 million home, but then the episode ends right before leaving the end of the episode, and the auction's going to be in the next episode. Cliffhanger, but the thing is, with any cliffhanger, there's a build to the event, and you actually have an investment in wanting to see the cliffhanger resolved. The thing is that you've got no investment at all in this house because they've barely shown you the house. Instead, you've been watching them going to like the family dinner of the guy who wants to buy the house on behalf of his clients. You've got a very extended sequence where he's having a party on his boat with all the real estate agents coming by and having their terrible yeah. vapid conversations with one another. The episode spends 50 minutes watching these wanker real estate agents exercising, having parties, drinking champagne. I don't know why you'd press play on the next episode when that first episode has not shown you anything that's compelling. Lux listing Sydney, it's as hard to say as it is to watch by all accounts. I don't want to see, spend any time with these people at all. Um, the fact that it's not another sort of spin on kind of like a Grand Designs or a um, Selling Australia or those sort of shows where they do focus on the house and less on the personalities, that disappoints me. Um, these are not personalities I want to spend much time with at all. So sorry, Real Estate Sydney, but um, not going to happen. Last, uh, see. Lux Listing Sydney. God, that's a shit title. Um, Question. It's on Amazon Prime Video. <laughs> Question, without notice. Have you ever wanted to spend time with real estate agents before? <laughs> as a past homeowner, I'm a renter at the moment, but as a past homeowner, there was maybe an hour or so when if you knew if you were going to get the house or not that you had to have them by your side. Otherwise, no, I didn't want to spend any time with them. And that's fair. Simon, what else are we talking about here? All right, let's go. Stick with Amazon Prime and let's go to their big sci-fi epic, The Tomorrow War. 30 years in the future. We are fighting a war. Our enemy is not human. And we are losing. We need you to fight. I will be back. And I love you, Chippy. Seven days from now, when you're sent into that war, won't be fighting for your country. You'll be fighting for the world. Is it all right? Yeah. Going to war. Stop talking. Listen. Sorry, I, I mean, when I'm nervous, I talk. I'm like a 90, 97 on the nervous scale. Chris Pratt sets the tone for this throwback sci-fi concept very early on. His happy, upper-middle-class life experience is a slight hiccup when he doesn't get a new high-paying private sector job that would see him move up from his worthy teaching position at a local college. So he chucks a major tantrum, kicking over bins and screaming in the street. Having dealt with this blow to his ego, saving the world from aliens will be a cinch. And so the Tomorrow War begins. Um, assuming everyone is watching a World Cup soccer match, a group of time travellers from the year 2015 51 arrive on the edge of the goal area to deliver an urgent message 30 years in the future mankind is losing a global war against a deadly alien species and they need to recruit fighting types from pleasant present day america to battle the not so little beasties Q recruitment montage where we meet chatty sidekick sam richardson and grizzled vet edwin hodge and a handful of other stereotypes that'll get their own moment in the heroic spotlight there's a kind of cool twist involving yvonne strahovski that makes no sense but works in the kind of logic free world in which chris mckay's film exists i actually thought the action scenes kind of delivered the monster reveal in the stairwell is, is pretty awesome the capture of the queen is a big exciting moment the attack on the ocean base has that kind of gamer special effects look that that worked in things like world war z 
So with Tomorrow War, imagine Starship Troopers, but much dumber, or basically Independence Day. So that's what you get with Tomorrow War. It's come to Amazon Prime after dodging cinemas. Um, this may have worked a little better on the big screen. The small screen shows it up for um, the really naff bit of storytelling that, is it, that it is. You've heard it from critics before, just switch your brain off and enjoy the visuals. That's applied no more um, uh, drastically than it is with, with Tomorrow War. Look, I really hate that phrase, switch your brain off, because... So, look, I do as well, I do as well. You shouldn't have to, you shouldn't yeah. have to, but it helps with a film like this. Look, so I watched this one during the week, and I agree, I think the action sequences are generally quite good. I wasn't as highly sold on that final sequence on the oil rig type um, thing that they were on, but the rest of it all highly engaging, and I was totally on board for that. I found that the relationship aspects of it, the time travel mechanics made zero sense whatsoever. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the one thing you know with time travel is that in order to affect the future, if you know what's coming, you can do things in the past and that information will be there in the future. Like we've all seen the Bill and Ted movies. Well, true. <laughs> they try to get around it by saying you, they can only transport back and forth one time, but that doesn't make any sense in itself. So as I was sort of getting my review together and thinking about what I wanted to say, the deeper I thought about this film, the more I realized realized how completely nutty it all was. Um I, I the, the one thing that surprised me and sort of got me on board was Yvonne Strahovski. She's very good as a character that's central to Chris Pratt's life. Um, the way they meet up and how they do it is so stupid, but um, the, 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 the actual plot spin is, is quite interesting. Um, but everything else about it was just so dumb. Um, effective monsters. Like, the creatures looked great, I thought. It, it looked like a, 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 a scary alien invasion type of film. Um Otherwise, it, it seems kind of 15 years too late. The, a lot of these movies came in the wake of Independence Day. Remember things 10 years ago like Edge of Tomorrow and stuff like that, which it, which it certainly resembles. Um, so, and, and Chris Pratt, who, you know, he's likable enough on screen. He just seems a little bit disinterested in this. He's going through the motions. You can kind of, kind mm. of see him do the take and then count the cash a little bit with this performance. Oh, look, I think that's absolutely right. I think Strahovski is fine enough. I think it's just miscast is the big issue. And there's definitely a weird sort of creepy sexual tension between Strahovski and Pratt. <laughs> oh God! If you knew the if you knew the plot twist, that is a very dark thing to say. But yes, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, look, I think it's fine as like a Sunday afternoon watch, but don't expect too much from it, and certainly don't yeah. expect to come out thinking you're a little bit smarter about the world. Because boy, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> the Tomorrow War is on Amazon Prime Video. Hey, let's go to the middle bit. Simon, there comes a time in every podcaster's life where you say, look, I'm in the middle bit of a podcast. In the middle bit, we like to take on a subject of some description. And you and I, we had a Black Widow-themed conversation we were going to have. But we saw the passing of Richard Donner during the week, and both of us immediately dropped pens and said, look, we want to talk about Richard Donner. Where do you come as the Richard Donner story? I would say that I come in around the time of well, probably early 80s. Um, he's made a big splash with The Omen and with Superman. Um, when I finally realised who Dick Donner is, to his friends, he liked to be called Dick Donner apparently, um, I come in at about the, the, the uh, you know, those, that, that early 80s period. Um, probably the predominant Dick Donner film for me was The Goonies, um, but... Uh, that was overtaken or, or sort of usurped in later years by Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk is 
just one of the most beautiful film fairy tales I've ever seen and our go-to film on the night of, of Dick Donner's passing was Lady Hawk. Um, but his history in Hollywood goes right back, and you'll have some insight to this, uh, to, to the, the golden years of television. I, th- I think for many of us, we really came to Dick Donner sort of through the 80s. So me, I was a young kid, and by the time I was really sort of that I'd sort of come online where I was actually able to, you know, go to the movies and see like a film where I was age appropriate. Uh, I remember seeing Lethal Weapons 2 at the drive-in. That's probably the first big screen Richard Donner experience I had. But I grew up like so many kids of the 80s watching his movies. So the Lethal Weapon films were very big in my household as a kid. And people who remember on the podcast, I was talking about those films just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'd watched all four films back to back and there were definitely some diminishing returns as that series went on. Uh, But the Superman movies, uh, Superman 1 and number 2, where he got fired off the project midway through, uh, you watch both of them and you also watch the Lethal Weapon films and the Goonies play into this and Lady Hawk. And the one thing you can probably really say about his work as a collective body is that there's this really sort of human element that runs through it all. These are real characters, real human beings that are actually experiencing these very sort of broad fantastical conceits. Even something that is very sort of fantastical as Superman he grounds Superman at the very beginning in this, you've got a Krypton that's about to explode and you've got the very cold, distant elements of Krypton, but there still seems to be a bit of a humanity of Superman's parents, even though they are sort of fairly cold mm. people. You get like that tangible connection to them, but then that just serves as a contrast to the humanity that you feel in Kansas and Clark Kent as he goes to Metropolis and meets some very real uh texture just interesting people in the face of like Lois Lane and Jimmy and like you really just get the sense that you're dealing with humans and you talk about his contemporaries at the time being your George Lucas's and Spielberg's and George Lucas I don't think anyone's ever looked at a George Lucas production and said that sure the man created blockbusters but boy did he have some great humans in his films like exactly right quite there uh, Spielberg is probably a bit more in line yeah. with like your Richard Donner sort of schools of blockbuster um, films. Steven approach. Spielberg did second unit on the Goonies uh, and Donner was in charge of the kids and he captures just as beautifully as any director ever has the the, combi- the, the chemistry between his young cast. Um, part of the reason that Gregory Peck signed on for The Omen uh, was that he just had a terrible tragedy in his life and, and, and lost a son. And, and uh, Dick Donner took him aside and um, explained the omen as a, a, a trajectory that he had to go through, that, that, that Gregory Peck could go through to, to help him deal with that grief and deal with um, the alienation of a, of a son um, who, you know, who wasn't around anymore. The stories on the set of that are, are, are really quite beautiful for a film that was so terrifying. We should point out very quickly that he did come out of the golden era of television. Um, there was a whole wave of directors, people like Alan Pakula and Norman Jewison and uh, and uh, uh, Sidney J. Fury, who came out of the, the early years of television. Uh, Dick Donner did Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, one of the most famous Twilight Zone episodes starring William Shatner and the monster on the wing. Um, and it's been rem- Yeah, look, absolutely probably. It's probably one of the most sort of yeah. parodied and mimicked. Um, TV episodes of all time, but also easily oh, one of the sure, best yeah. episodes of television from all time. Like, if you sit down and watch that half hour, like, it is deeply absorbing. Yes, the gremlin on the wing, the special effects, like, the costuming for the gremlin looks a little bit naff, but beyond that, like, the rest of that episode is such a tight yeah. little and piece it's, of And show. it's been transformed into the George Miller sequence from the movie, and Adam Scott starred in the recent Jordan Peele version of it as well, so it's been enduring, um, and Dick Donner's got a lot to... to um, 
be thankful be be thankful for that regard. And in the and then in the the seventies he. Um, sort of made a series of very well-received TV movies, most notably Sarah T. Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, which sort of came in the... uh, There was a whole wave of uh, issue of the week type movies, and this one starring Linda Blair um, was one of the most famous. Uh, He'd done some films before, actually did a lot of work in the UK, made films like X-15 and Salt and Pepper and Lola, um, but really found his niche when he returned to America, did these TV films, um, and then moved into the omen the superman and the blockbuster 80s that we that we uh, fell in love with him through yeah like that big screen career of his really kicked in sort of fairly later in life for him so he's in his mid to late 40s by the time that all started really ramping up so i think it was like about 47 48 when the omen was made uh but like just in terms of some of the tv credits that he had like obviously got that twilight zone episode but like every other title he's worked on it's been like yeah. a veritable who's who well what spot of tv series he worked on, and it wasn't just that episode of the Twilight Zone, he did about six episodes of that. He did a bunch of The Man from Uncles, he did a few Gilligan's Islands, did a few Perry Masons, there's some Get Smart episodes in his filmography, a couple of Fugitives, the FBI, Wild Wild West. Uh, he did some episodes of the Banana Splits Adventure Hour, which I thought was a quirky <laughs> addition to the filmography there. Uh, what else did I see in there? Street there was San um, yeah, Banyan, yeah, Ironside, yeah, uh, Street yeah. San Francisco, uh, Kojak. Like, you know, that is a wealth of TV experience that he brought. So by the time he was, like, hitting the big time with films like The Omen, like, it comes with a considerable amount of experience and uh, filmic sensibility that he's he bringing to the screen. He paired with his uh, wife, Lauren Schuler to start Schuler Donna Productions. Um, under their banner, they had some huge hits like the Free Willy series, um, uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in You've Got Mail, Oliver Stone's Any Given Sunday. They were in charge of all the X-Men films, um, both the really good ones at the start and the really bad ones at the end, although she has said many times over that she had nothing to do with Dark Phoenix or the last couple of, of really dire X-Men films, only um, she, she distanced <laughs> herself from that quick, pretty quickly. Um, Lauren Shuler had done Pretty in Pink and St. Elmo's Fire when she paired up with, with Richard Donna um, and they became a Hollywood power couple but a power couple that threw their power around very philanthropically they were you know Hollywood good people they were always working behind the scenes to uh, on charity work and getting young filmmakers films up and running Um, if you haven't seen if there's one Richard Donna film um, that you haven't seen and a lot of people haven't seen Radio Flyer I would recommend uh, seeking it out. I'm pretty sure it's on one of the platforms. It stars Elijah Wood um, and Joseph Mazzello as two young brothers who um, survive an abusive household uh, and disappear into a fantasy world through their radio flyer trolley, their their, their toy cart. Um, and it is a beautiful, beautiful film. Probably that and Lady Hawker is two most personal movies. And um, and if you can get a hold of Radio Fly, that's one worth checking out. Something else I recommend checking out, uh, talked about Superman a little while ago, uh, the Superman mm-hmm. 2, the Donner Cut. So he got fired off the movie, but Warner Brothers in the mid-2000s when DVD was, you know, really raking in the cash, they gave him a bit of money to go and finish his sort of original intention with the footage that he had. Far better film than the Superman 2 that we saw, even though I don't, really mind the Superman 2 that we saw in the cinemas that much but you know it's still a probably good thing Uh, but the first Superman DVD has this great audio commentary with him and Tom Mankiewicz who was an uncredited writer on the film and that first Superman film went through so many writers Mankiewicz is really responsible for the film that we saw on the screen as opposed to all the other actual credited writers 
But Mankiewicz and Richard Donner, you can listen to the two of them for about two hours and they are incredibly candid about the production. They'll talk about people on the staff who are having affairs with other people <laughs> and some of the hijinks going on behind the scenes. Hugely entertaining. And I don't know if they told the story on that DVD or if it was just somewhere else I heard Tom Mankiewicz speaking. But Mankiewicz is talking about how he wasn't really entirely sure if he wanted to be on the Superman film. Like, Superman was like this sort of naff comic book character in the Adventures of Superman TV show. It didn't sound like something he was that keen on. But anyway, he had been called over by Richard Donner to his house to, you know, be convinced into doing it. And Richard Donner steps through the front door out into the yard to meet him in the driveway. And he's wearing a Superman costume. <laughs> and he comes out there looking like this fool just coming out there. And that's kind of when it sealed the deal for Mankiewicz and he got excited. By all accounts, Richard Donner had a skill with convincing people to, to work with him. Um, very famously, Gene Hackman didn't want to do Lex Luthor. Um, and he certainly didn't want to shave his... Uh, favorite moustache off to play the uh, hirsutely challenged Lex Luthor. Um, so Dick Donner, when he met with uh, um, uh, Gene Hackman, he was wearing a fake moustache and he said, if you shave your moustache off, I'll shave my moustache off. Now, Gene Hackman never picked up that it was a fake moustache. So as soon as um, <laughs> Gene Hackman shaved his off, Richard Donner just zipped it all off and by that stage, it was too late for Hackman to back out. So they all they all had a good laugh about it. And Hackman came out of retirement um, this week to, to comment on what a joy it was to, to work with him and what a great man Richard Donner was. So thank you, Dick Donner, for the, the, the years of great movie making and television making you gave us. And um, you'll always be remembered because you, uh, you hold a very special heart in a part in the, the hearts of a whole lot of moviegoers. So RIP, Dick Donner. <laughs> Simon, you had a chat with Christine Luby during the week. Yes. Uh, what do these elements all say to you? Tropical island, childhood crush, beautiful people realising what and who is really important in life. It's the kind of romantic drama made for 90 minutes of comfy pants couch time. And that's what director Christine Luby delivers in her first feature film, This Little Love of Mine, which came out during the week on Netflix. You will get the whole Finley account. This is the big leagues now, honey. Fly over. Find ship. Get the contract signed. Ask the chip. You'll be back in a few days. Jim! You came back? Laura Price? Surprise! Look at you, Miss Big City Lawyer. Your comfy pants couch time is all set for the weekend ahead. Uh, this little love of mine is the perfect film to snuggle up to on the cold winter's day here in Australia or wherever you are around the world via the Netflix platform. It's the first film from director Christine Luby and she's here to tell us how she did it. Welcome to Screen Watching, Christine. Thank you so much, glad to be here. Um, as I mentioned, Netflix has launched This Little Love of Mine into 190 countries. After more than a decade in the biz, you're finally having your overnight success moment. How did this project become your, your feature directing debut? Yeah, great question. So um, it was almost exactly one year ago that we started shooting this little love of mine right in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and I think it's I, I have to kind of credit uh, the situation at the time for me getting my opportunity because, um, yeah, I hadn't directed before. I hadn't even done a short. Um, and the Steve Jaggy company, who's the production company that made the film, were in a position that they couldn't import other directors from other states. Um, and so I worked with them for many, many years, primarily as a first assistant director and I started kind of putting my hand up and saying you know this is kind of something I'd like I'd like to do and uh, an opportunity arose during the pandemic and I jumped at it and a few weeks later we were up to far north Queensland. 
So uh, tropical resort shoot, good. Uh, global pandemic, bad. Give us a little insight into a, a COVID compliant film set. Sure, yeah. I mean, we were the first film to begin principal photography during the pandemic. So we were working very closely with Queensland Health, lots of COVID safe documents going around, um, but there wasn't really a precedent. I mean, now, so, so many productions have managed to continue filming um, and invent new ways, but we were kind of fresh out of the gate. So we had to figure it out really carefully. So we were lucky in that the film takes place at a resort. So we created our own little COVID safe bubble by staying at the same resort that more than half the film was shot at. So straight away, we had our little bubble. Everyone got tested as soon as they got off the airplane and then isolated till they got their results. Uh, and then we had our little bubble. So it wasn't, it wasn't too bad, actually. It would have been very nice. Yes, it's a beautiful part of the world. Um, the, the romance in paradise genre, the friends falling in love genre, you've tapped into a, a fairly rich cinematic vein there, bringing the story of, of Laura and Chip to Netflix. Do you have any film favourites that influence this little love of mine? Uh, look, not really in the rom-com genre, although I do love rom-coms. I'm more inspired by shows like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. I'm an ex-dancer, and so anything, what really kind of gets me going is interesting camera movement and wonders where you don't cut the camera and a whole scene plays out in one shot and, yep. and just that sort of marriage of camera movement and blocking, and that's the stuff that really, really excites me. So um, I, I did use some of those influences in the film. Nice. Nice. In, in the romance genre, I guess half the work is done if you get the casting chemistry right. And, and uh, Saskia and Liam, they're terrific together. Did they spark from day one or was there a long rehearsal period to make it look like they liked each other? Sure. So I lucked out. Three of the cast members knew each other from L.A. They'd all oh, gone wow. to the same gym and had, had known each other for a number of years. So Liam, Saskia and Lynn Gilmartin, who plays Jem, um, all knew each other. So, you know, the best friend relationship already there. The, the, the romance between the two leads already there. So I just got really lucky, actually, because we had I think I had four hours of rehearsal total. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. It's such a, I mean, obviously, the location helps. It's such a beautiful looking film. Um, and, and, and that's not lost at all on the small screen. It, it comes through just, just wonderfully. I was, I'm interested because we don't really do that old fashioned battle of the sexes romantic drama anymore. And this little love of mine, it features very contemporary lead characters, um, but there's also some traditional gender role playing in there as well. Was finding that balance between old fashioned romance and what 2021 society expects a, a particular challenge? Were you conscious of that? Mm, yeah, look, I was. We, we like to call it a contemporary rom-com, but at the same time, it does have some of those classic rom-com beats in. And because it was my first film, I was quite keen to kind of um, stay with those those classic rom-com beats and hit them, you know, the near kiss and the, the kiss at the end. And so I was quite happy to follow that formula, but I like to think that we put our own little spin on it. Um, yeah, and... I think it's about making a film that's going to appeal from age eight to 80, which does somewhat restrict the sort of content that you can put in there. So we wanted to, you know, we wanted to make a G rated film. So that's, I, I'd say that kind of colored it more than, um, more than anything else. Yeah. Um, you've lived the kind of 2020, the rest of us only dreamt of shooting three episodes of, of the hit series dive club and this little love of mine in sunny Queensland. If they next offer you a love story shooting in Alaska in winter, is, is it a yes or a no? Funny you should ask. Yes, I'm actually in pre-production and I start shooting on Monday on another feature film that is another rom-com. Oh, lovely. In Queensland, obviously. In Queensland, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, you're not going to um, tie yourself to a, 
tropical climbs the rest of your career, are you? No, I don't think so. Although I do love far north Queensland. What an extraordinary place on earth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously with the, the screen Queensland got behind you and Steve at, at the Steve Jaggy company, he's a, he's a smart operator. So he's um, in putting together this production, he's found a, a, a formula that, that has served the industry well and, and talent such as yourself well. Mm, absolutely. And the company has a long history of supporting first time female directors. Um, and I worked on so many of the shows where I was first ADing for a first time director. Um, and it's just beautiful. It's, it's a great training ground and to be able to come up the ranks and have that career progression through the company is pretty cool. I, um, I interviewed a couple of the, the actresses from Dive Club. They didn't want to say too much about a season two. Can you uh, offer any insight? Unfortunately, I can't. No, oh, no. <laughs> fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> All the very best. Um, if you've got Netflix, you've got this to the love of mine. Christine Luby, congratulations on such a lovely film and thanks for joining us on Screen Watching. Thank you so much. Simon, as we wrap up the podcast this week, let's take a quick look at the week ahead. Now, there's not a lot playing in cinemas because Black Widow has taken up all the screens, except for here in New South Wales, where everything is very dark. Very dark indeed. Very sad times. Let's look at the small screen first. There's a new series, sort of new to Australia, uh, on BBC First called Time. It's a three-episode drama series with Sean Bean from Game of Thrones and also Stephen Graham from Boardwalk Empire. And it's a prison drama, three-episode run, and it sounds like it's going to be an intense, brutal, and worthwhile watch. Fox Showcase has Catch and Kill the Podcast Tapes. This is six episodes. Starts next Tuesday, July 13 at 8.30. This is a, an expanded documentary series uh, based on Ronan Farrow's investigation into the Weinstein uh, matters. Uh, it looks at the lengths taken to silence Farrow and the, the whistleblowers who spoke out. Um, the podcast and the book upon which it was based were very successful. I'm keen to see how they spin the, the series as well. So it's um, it looks like an interesting watch. On Netflix this weekend, there's it's not for, it's not Black Widow, but it's a different superhero thing. It's called How I Became a Superhero. It's a French movie about uh, superheroes being assimilated into prison society, and there's a new drug that gives superpowers to mere mortals like you and I. <laughs> yeah, we already have our superpowers. We've got podcast powers, Dan Barrett. Um, in special event cinemas around the country, the Scandinavian Film Festival is going ahead in other capital cities except Sydney. A lot of fantastic movies starring really white people, um, including a new Marlene Ackerman film. I'm a big is that her name? Yes, Marlene Ackerman film. I'm a big fan. Uh, and at the Deck Chair Cinema in Darwin, there's a charity screening on Sunday the 11th at 7pm uh, from the Darwin Film Society of that great Philip Noyce film, Rabbit Proof Fence from 2002. Get along to the Deck Chair Cinema website to book your tickets. Simon, this week in history, on the 10th of July, 1981, the classic Escape from New York premiered in the US. Uh, it's a big week for exciting movies. Look, back in 1895, this is a real history lesson, on July 11, Auguste and Louis Lumiere show film for the first time, project onto a wall for scientists who are all amazed. And then in 1923, the Hollywood sign is officially un unveiled. Um, originally read Hollywood Land, of course, and overlooked a, a real estate um, plot of land. Uh, the last four letters were dropped after renovation in 1949, and we have the Hollywood sign as we know it now. So important moments in film history. And on July 15, 1988, is a film which is absolutely not connected to a seasonal event at all. It's called Die Hard, and it starred Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. Best Christmas movie ever. Uh, July well, 9... Oh, well, that's going to be it controversial. Though, is it... No. <laughs> Simon, I control the microphones here. 
Uh, birthdays, Mr. Tom Hanks, July 9, 1956, was born in California, the beautiful Michelle Rodriguez, July 12, 1978, little fella called Harry Ford, went on to be Indy Jones, July 13, 1942, scriptwriter, actress, comedian, Phoebe Waller-Bridge had a huge hit with Fleabag a couple of years ago, July 14, and she's starring opposite Harrison Ford in the new movie, isn't she, or, or has done a bit of a rewrite on it, from what I understand, and then on July 15, I had to put this in, because I love this woman, Linda Ronstadt, was born in 1946 in Tucson, Arizona. Okay, Simon, we've hit the end of the podcast, <sighs> and what a podcast it's been. Thank you for listening to Screen Watching. I'm Dan Barrett. You can find me there on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. You should start your day with my free newsletter, Always Be Watching. And you can find that at alwaysbewatching.com. It has the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Fridays, you've got the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that week. I'm Simon Foster. You can read my words over at ScreenSpace. That's screen-space.net. Uh, on Twitter, at SimonRFoster1. Go to the Screen Watching Facebook page, at Screen Watching Podcast. You'll get um, all your screen news from around the world. And check out the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival websites and Facebook page, where we'll be releasing news on my film festival as it nears coming up November 4. And you can follow Screen Watching via your favourite podcast app. Load it up now, hit the follow button, and the podcast will just load on into your podcast. You don't even need to think about it. And in this day and age where you're watching The Tomorrow War, do you really want to think about anything? No. The answer is no. no. Do so not. just do what I say, hit follow, get the podcast. Always a pleasure, Dan Barrett. Thank you, sir. Thank you, listeners. Let's talk next week. Mm-hmm.